Welcome to Dot 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 the Musical, where each week we take a favorite movie, book, or other story and turn it into a stage musical. I'm Jen. And I'm Haley. And this week we're fighting through 10 Things I Hate About You, the musical. So this is the classic 1999 film written by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith, who also wrote She's the Man, another great Shakespeare into modern times adaptation, uh, which of course this is based on Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, uh, and it was directed by Gil Younger. It was the breakout film for Heath Ledger, R.I.P., Julia Stiles, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it, it basically had positive reviews at the time, decent box office, but it has attained, I would argue, classic status in the years since it was released. So this, I like, I like this film. Yeah. I like, I mean, I have, so my personal relationship to this film is I feel like it was, um, well, we had the soundtrack honestly in our car for like years. Like it was the CD that we had in our car for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I feel okay. like I've watched it over and over again. Like I like it was definitely in the rotation of of teen movies. A little pre like I feel like there was Ten Things Said About You, there was like Legally Blonde, and there was like Miss Congeniality, and those were like the three that I were constantly watched at at a certain age. I think even as a preteen, like not even as a teen, as like a twelve year old. That's great. So that's I that's my relationship w- with it. Like I feel like we watch it all the time. Maybe it's also because my like family liked it as a film. Yeah. Do you? What is your relationship to the film? Well, my relationship to this film is really important. Um, in that I went to Sarah Lawrence, oh, which right. is the school that Pat gets into at the beginning of the movie. And whenever I told people where I go to college, they say, "Why have I heard of that?" And I'd say, "Have you seen things I hate about you?" And they go, "Oh yeah." So. It's a film I talk about a lot. Yeah. And uh, and Larissa Olenek, who uh, also, you know, known for her role as Alex Mack on uh, Nickelodeon, I think. Um, who Did plays... that predate this? Or was it that after? It had to, right? Didn't yeah. So I guess, it? I mean, I guess that's why yeah. I didn't list her as one of the breakout actors. Right. Because she, she was, was already Alex because... Mack. Yeah. She already had a, a following. Uh, so Larissa Olenek um, went to Sarah Lawrence, right? Yes. Yeah. That's why, actually, it's Sarah Lawrence in the film. Because they were like, Ooh. what college should... Uh, cat get into and she was like oh I'm going to this wild hippie school uh, have her go there which I mean I think it's such a I don't actually don't know if I believe that story because it's the perfect college for cat to get into yeah <laughs> it had to be that or Smith on that note actually no to go back to your point not on yeah. that note mm-hmm. I think that the soundtrack is a great place to start talking yeah. about this film because I think that is one of the key sort of simultaneously challenges and opportunities Absolutely. With this film is that the soundtrack is iconic. It's amazing. It fits the characters so well. It fits. Yeah. It evokes a time and place so mm-hmm. well. And yeah. thinking about it, um, there was just a musical of Clueless, which I think is sort of a movie that often gets kind of talked about in the same breath as yes. this because they're both really good updated adaptations of like classic mm-hmm. literature. Um, and what they did for this Clueless musical was it's like it's like a jukebox musical. But they changed the lyrics of the songs to, like, fit the characters. Interesting. So the only example I can think of from the review I read, because I didn't see it, was, like, 
it had like it's like 90s songs but they changed the lyrics like i feel like that's something we yeah. did interesting like, in my fan fiction writing days like it sounds really weird and apparently it doesn't really work and i think that is absolutely not what this should be but it reflects a temptation i understand of like oh my gosh the music of this period <laughs> calling the 90s a period <laughs> um the music of this distant era is so <laughs> iconic and so evocative yeah. of the time that like oh Definitely. you do want to include it but like i don't think this should be a jukebox musical no like it's very tempting to kind of be like what if we just in a in a magical world what if we just got the, the rights to every song on the soundtrack and just like somehow worked it in but i just i just don't think that's the way to go and i also no. i'm not sure because music is so integral like it's very tempting to like turn turn it into maybe like everyone's in a band or like you know or <laughs> like cats in a band i mean cat maybe should be in a band but like yeah. you know like a guitar is like a central point like their taste in music are like central points but i'm kind of i i kind of don't really want to go traditional i don't think that the story calls for like a traditional musical structure what actually i would be really into on some level is like kind of having a structure like spring awakening where mm -hmm. the music functions in a really different way in spring awakening the piece is like a period piece and then they step outside themselves and the songs don't even necessarily relate to their parsing out the emotions that they're going through and they're parsing out like they're kind of translating their emotions to the audience using like common language but it's they're not married to the language of the time and I kind of and they're I, not they're not like narrative songs no they're not narrative songs and I think that that would be a really interesting way to go about having a, a structure for how music exists and 10 things about you like I mean I love in Spring Awakening they just like take they're obviously like wearing lavaliers like body mics but like they pull out hand mics and it like and it and it signifies that they're like in this kind of liminal space where they're commenting yeah. commenting on the situation and i think that would be really interesting another part of me is this could go great and or it could go terribly but like could you get someone a cool you know 90s rock person to write the music like instead of someone with a musical theater background i mean that is like a thing now with it totally waitress is. and yeah. with that's the, the only one coming to mind, but there's other ones. The last well, ship. Hades Town, the last oh, ship. Yeah, I mean, like, Hades I actually Town. don't think that's as much of a reach as perhaps it once would have been. Um, and I love that first idea. I think those two ideas could go together. Obviously, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I love that first idea for a lot of reasons. One of which is, I think, one of the questions we're always trying to answer is like, how is this a world? You know, in a musical. Yes. You start singing because you're having these overpowering feelings that you need to express outwardly. And this is a story and a world in which the characters can't express themselves in essential ways. Like they can't reveal themselves. And I think, you know, you have to strike that balance with like, okay, so in a musical, do you sort of reveal Kat's kind of inner self to the audience much sooner because she sings? Or is there something really useful in the kind of distancing of like they're singing, but they're not like singing their backstory, you know, oh, they're not singing yeah. these like sort of first person really narrative musical um, songs, but they're using music more the way teenagers use music of like, oh my God, this song like speaks to me. Like, and I think it's absolutely can be, I think it's the soundtrack is used to apply that this is a world where like the music you listen to defines who you are. I don't think yeah. that ever get said or like made explicit but like cat is so associated with like the genre of music that she yes. likes and so turning that into like okay the only way these characters can express themselves is in a, in a weird way when they're alone yeah. in this liminal space using their favorite genres of music to kind right. of speak for them 
I that's exactly what I was trying to get at. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great. And then also people then like different characters also can have different tones. Like I imagine like uh, Kat is obviously more a little bit. Uh, I feel like the genre is like angry girl music, but like I mean, but it is. It is. Yeah, it's I like not, I think that's what Patrick calls it in the movie. <laughs> angry girl music and like Bianca I feel like is a little more like Mandy Moore or something like that it reminds me of this amazing point that I think we may return to someday that was Mm -hmm. like the New York Times did this conversation about um yes jukebox musicals and like they're often poorly critically received jukebox musicals so they're sort of talking about like why is that like what do you want from one and I think it was Elizabeth Vincentelli who made this amazing point that she's like she wants a jukebox musical to evoke the way you felt when you first heard that artist i loved her perspective in that piece so much uh, yeah. if you're listening please go read that piece well i'm sure i'll figure out how to link to it it's it's so great it's great and that point was just like oh my god like imagine yeah that's exactly what you want and something mm-hmm. i think i've never experienced in a jukebox musical partly because they're made for mostly people like older musicians right. like our like, nostalgia musicals haven't been written yet. made yet yeah yes. but like i feel like that's something music could do in this is like yes. evoking because obviously this was – it was released in 1999. It was set in 1999. It wasn't trying to evoke a period. It was just evoking the present, I think, really effectively. So, yeah, using music to do that, to make you feel sort of how you felt when you first watched this movie and you were, you know, presumably between 9 and, like, 16 years old. <laughs> yeah. Can we also – so I think one of the, like – aside from the iconic soundtrack, there's a larger sort of – challenge of like this is such an iconic piece which is I think something again we're going to return to again and again and again because we're choosing a lot of um you know well-known pieces to adapt to musicals but like for this particularly it's like there are so many iconic one-liners there's so, so much many there's so many also the bits, side note, all the bits. Uh, so many bits like also a ton of visual humor that's like perfect for film and really does not at all translate to the stage and then there are a thousand characters <laughs> yeah well but the thing i think that part of the answer to this problem lies yeah. in choosing a structure like the mm-hmm. one you described where like if it's a really traditional musical format then you're just mm-hmm. going to be expecting the scenes you know to be set on stage with songs stuck in them but if from the start breaking open the structure in like the way you suggested sort of gives you freedom to break open the structure in other ways so maybe there aren't maybe the teachers aren't there at all or like the role of the adults is completely reconceived or you know the way that the sort of bazillion secondary and tertiary characters exist is just totally different and you've are and by already rejecting the obvious structure and mm-hmm. like you I think have more freedom to then reject the obvious adaptation methods that's a good point thank you there's one thing actually just since we're talking about kind of structure and changes that i would want to reject immediately which i was really surprised rewatching it for the first time in several years um (laughs) is that the whole first half is about cameron yes kid who ends up joseph gordon levitt's character who ends up with bianca and like he is super the sort of point of view character and then it very kind of clumsily switches over to Kat partway through. But the whole beginning is him. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. And I don't think he should be that prominent. And I guess in a way it's sort of mirroring the structure of Taming of the Shrew, where we, our sort of point of view character is the, is Bianca's suitor. And then it Mm. kind of switches over to the other couple. But I think there's absolutely no reason for Bianca not to be the person who like invites us into the world. Definitely. I think in 
my adaptation, I would want, I think it's much more interesting to focus on the sister relationship. It's something that never really gets resolved in the movie. Yeah, it's not really a good, it doesn't really feel like a satisfying payoff in the movie. It's like she brings her like tea at the end or something. Yeah, it's just this really sort of unsatisfying, like, I was trying to protect you from my mistakes. Oh, that makes up for everything then, I guess. Right. <laughs> also, you were totally right. You do know better. Bye. Yeah, like, yeah. There's no, it's not a hard one Yeah. sort of detente. It's like the second they sit down to think, to talk about it, it gets resolved. Yeah. And I think that they're, like, sister relationships are complex. And I think that, like, that is a much more satisfying sort of story that I want to see in a musical and then you know obviously the love is important also and the suitors Mm -hmm. and like all of that fun stuff makes the film and would make the musical like fun and and funny and good but also like making Bianca a more well-rounded character makes that a more satisfying romance as well yeah definitely there's this weird thread in the movie where it's like oh Bianca is stuck up and selfish and a brat and that never kind of gets undermined it's just like she gets together and Cameron's like well I don't care and then they get together and you're like oh so what are we, what do we take from this that that all wasn't true and like what do we and it just seems like a lost opportunity to sort of compare the two sisters reputations yeah and the idea that both of them are misread by the outside world mhm um and both of them sort of find a more more authentic way of well right cuz like yeah cuz i mean like the tension i think between them is like is Bianca is is very much like I want to conform and I'm going to conform and this is how I find happiness, which isn't super authentic to her actually. No, uh, it like, also makes now that you say that makes absolutely no sense with then the sort of like intel that Cameron gets, which is that she's like a stuck up brat and airhead. Right. Unless that's we're supposed to think that's how she conforms, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like that's like the idea of like the the popular sect. There's still, even though like, oh, yeah. What I actually like about Ten Things I About You a lot is the whole like high school hierarchy is something that like never resonated with me um, because my high school was a lot more like at how they kind of portray Ten Things I About You with like different groups. Like, there's mm-hmm. just like different groups. There was like the leadership group. There was like the um the drama kids there's like you know there's just like there was a bunch of different groups and there was no social hierarchy but it does seem like she's in the group that like thrives on like people dramatically breaking up in the quad and like she wants (laughs) to be with the douchebag model yeah i do think we'd be helped by a stronger sense though of like even if it's not a social hierarchy like what she's conforming to yes absolutely and like I, and then this, like, leads into another question. What she's conforming to, how mm. that contrasts to what Kat is rebelling against. Yes. But I think that what I really like about the movie is that part of what Kat is rebelling against is being a nice person. Like, she <laughs> sucks. She's a dick. <laughs> she doesn't suck. She's great. But, like, she is an asshole. Yeah. Although, with some things... Okay. Rewatching this movie, it is, like, absolutely horrifying how many PMF jokes there are. Ugh. And, like, oh, my God. It's just, like... Speaking it's... of evoking an era. <laughs> I know. I know. It really, it did really bring me back to like being in middle school and like being in that time and being like, oh my God, these were just like normal things to say. Yeah. All the PMS and, jokes, all of the like female that's... bashing jokes were like so present. And like, yeah. I mean, and like it is, you can't, I think you can't have cat in a world where like no one ever calls a woman a bitch. I, yeah. But at the same time, like, how far do you need to go? Do we? Where's yeah. the difference between sort of depicting and like propagating? Yes, and I think absolutely. it definitely hits the point where like characters that we like and are supposed to think are 
cool and chill and funny you make BMS jokes. And I'm like, why? Must we? They're not funny. They're make not, a funny joke. Make a, exactly. But it does it does evoke the time in this like very particular way. But also, I mean, the first scene where she's in the classroom and she's like, why are we just reading Hemingway and like dead white authors? Why can't we read some women authors? I'm kind of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then there's that weird moment where she like gets shamed by the black teacher and it's like oh you stuck up rich white girl like you don't know and it's sort of this weird moment that again I'm like what do we do with that like why do they feel the need to just humiliate her in that moment not that he's not making a good point yeah he's making a great point but it's also like a point that never returns and like isn't what the movie's about it's just like there's this weird urge like it's funny the like film's love of Kat and like support of her choices is also threaded through with this need to humiliate her. Yes, there's all absolutely. these weird moments where she gets like degraded for no reason, which is to be fair, absolutely true to the Taming of the Shrew, but also yes. why I hate uh, that play. A hundred percent. And I, I don't think you can have both. Like you don't get no. to have Kat humiliated by her teacher for no reason, take off her top for a teacher for no reason, and be like a feminist movie or musical or anything yeah you get both right and I think it is like there is this sort of I love that it's not just like cat doesn't fit in it's like cat's right. not nice yeah cat probably does need to chill a little bit if she ever wants to have friends but I think that like even the movie itself is kind of afraid of that and needs to like kind of degrade her and embarrass her in these moments to like keep her in her place in this weird way and I think that that's a fear I hope a musical in the year 2019 or you know whenever could let go of and say no she's just an abrasive person she's never gonna get her comeuppance right that's not what this is about so in terms of like having her as like uh, letting her be mean letting her be an abrasive character what change does she go go through at the end yeah i mean well she gets a good boyfriend so (laughs) that makes every that makes her nice (laughs) obviously Oh yeah, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, it's just Heath Ledger, just yeah. like whoever plays the Heath that Ledger smile, character. The power of that smile just melts her icy bitch heart. Mm-hmm. And um, just turns nice again. Yeah. Well, I like. I think that there's so like how I understand the story is very much like two poles of like Bianca being someone who's like conforming to some idea of something, whereas Kat is just like so far anti-conforming that like neither of them are actually like their authentic selves on some level yeah you know and I think there's a difference of Kat being able to be mean as just like you're an abrasive person and I think that there's part of it that it is like I don't want to be vulnerable and I'm not going to be vulnerable and I'm going to throw spikes at you because like I'm not yeah I think that's absolutely it I mean and I think that's basically the conversation that her and Patrick have in the middle is I don't I use my reputation because it's useful and I don't I mean it's yeah it's the whole like if I say first that I don't care what you think, right. then like you can't, you know, if I'm like, yeah, if I'm basically weird, defensive. then you can't call yeah. me weird. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I really think what I see as Kat's journey is basically the journey to the moment of reading the terrible sonnet and being comfortable with expressing an emotion that isn't anger in public. Absolutely. And like that, that emotion is related to her sort of heterosexual love interest is like sure we'll accept that that's like the symbolic framework in which this is taking place because it's a rom-com but like fundamentally it's not about oh she has a boyfriend now so she opened her heart it's like she has achieved a sort of peace right with herself and her place in the school that is like okay I can I don't have to fight people off before they can hurt me 
Yeah. And also like I can have a boyfriend if I want to have a boyfriend instead of being like, I'm not going to have a boyfriend because that would be yeah. way too Making vulnerable like, and yeah. not and, in like, keeping with my image. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. And that like any guy will hurt me and like be high schooly and crap. Yeah. Which, you know, not wrong, but not wrong. <laughs> and on that note, should we go to our intermission cocktail? <laughs> yes. So I actually had a few options for the intermission cocktail because I did a bit of research because I really wanted... So Seattle, well, we haven't gotten to yet, um, but I, I'm sure we're going to get to in the second half of this is the background of Seattle is like so present. So I really wanted a Seattle-based cocktail. Um, <laughs> and actually, there's a famous cocktail called The Last Word that they do at this cocktail bar called Zigzag, but it doesn't originate in Seattle. It's from Manhattan, but I kind of lo- I love the idea of the title, like The Last Word. Yeah, that's really good. Right? Um, but then there's actually, okay, so there's that. And then there's this bar called Teacher's Lounge, which seems like ridiculously appropriate to, to this story. And there's actually a drink that they make called Warrior Poet. Ooh. And so I was kind of like, I feel like what I'd want to do is have Teacher's Lounge create, like, a signature cocktail for... Oh, that's cute. Right? And, like... Uh, I like that. Right? The Warrior Poet is, like, blended scotch, Benedictine, and grapefruit juice. Um mm. I feel like the, I want the Teacher's Lounge to create, like, a last word or, like, Warrior Poet-inspired cocktail. Anyway. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Those were a lot of thoughts on the cocktail this week. Well, Nothing you know, usually they task. have a couple, like at least two, I feel like. And there's, you know, the two different names. Right. So I just, there was a lot of good things about the Seattle cocktail scene that I was like, oh, this could really lend itself really well. That's really funny. And that is our intermission cocktail. Should we talk about Seattle? Yeah, which is funny because I think in an unprecedented moment, I kind of disagree. I think really probably just because the weather's so nice, it doesn't feel like the Pacific Northwest to me at all. Um, again, <laughs> That's fair. Like I got my, I like, I'm from SoCal, so the weather just looks like that all the time. <laughs> yeah, it looks, I mean, it's like they have the sort of establishing skyline shots of Seattle and like, I guess yeah. some other shots, but like, it looks like LA to me. Mm. And like, I think that school that they're at actually is in or near Seattle or somewhere in Washington. Yeah, it is. It it's does in not look like it to yeah. me okay, at all. That's fair. Sorry. Fair but enough. it is, you know, but I think there are always questions in a musical that we yeah. raise again and again, and I know we're going to raise next week, about creating a sense of place. And Definitely. especially given that, like, the high school, the, the, high, the musical set in a high school is, like, such a genre. Definitely. You know, yeah. how do you not just have one of these sets that's, like, a rel of lacquers? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? And, like, I, I really love the school that they're at. It's just a cool-looking yeah, school. Wild. Like, yeah, I mean, it is the heart of the thing to sort of sidetrack slightly that I feel like yeah. it's like the unexcavated plot line of the mm-hmm. story, which is that clearly Patrick, who we haven't talked about much, but I think we'll yeah. get to, mm-hmm. is a poor kid in a rich school. And that like, that's part of why he takes the money is that like, he is the only person in this world who needs money. Everyone else, like, obviously, the Joey, the douchey model, like, is shown as being like cavalierly rich and tossing out money on a scale that probably like Kat and Bianca can't but like mm-hmm. that feels like something that's really at the heart of his relationship to the people around him that never quite and the, their willingness to be like oh he's a criminal like right never quite gets said or made into something 
And that's something that really jumped out at me this time. And then especially when you look at the school, this like luxurious campus, like these are rich kids. Yeah. And they all have cars. I mean, they all have cars. They all have cars. That's and another thing. Yeah. So many scenes in cars. So many scenes in cars. And like, I, that's very, I mean, that's very relevant to like my high school experience, like growing up in like in Orange County, like everyone had cars and like, that's where a lot of high school stuff took place. Yeah, but cars look bad on oh, stage. Oh, cars look horrible on stage. Cars are the worst. So, so you know what? I'm actually, now that we're sort of have suggested this more like abstract mm-hmm. structure with like yeah. stepping out, I'm like almost picturing a set where it's like you actually have everyone's separate car like permanently in a place on stage with like the seats and an actual steering wheel that yeah. people could just like go and sit. It's almost like a car with just like the front sliced off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like none of this like, oh, two stools with like a mimed steering wheel. Like literally part of the set is like everyone's separate car that you can like just go and be in and sit in and like, yeah. it's you know, got their like McDonald's bags on the floor and stuff. <laughs> Like, what if the cars are actually, like, the sort of central mm. image of the set? Oh, that could be really interesting. In an, like, in, not in a sort of, you drive on in the car, but, like, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. somehow... Somehow, like, like, like a part of it, like, artistically. Yeah. yeah. Instead of their bedrooms, almost, we see their cars. Like, what if instead of going through Kat's room, they go through Kat's car? Ooh, I like that so much better. I don't know why she'd have black underwear in her car, but, you know, in her gym bag or something. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like... Uh, that is, it is very classic sort of to be like, okay, we have the locker scenes and we have the bedroom scenes. <laughs> like, yeah, and like, and then the prom scene. Right, and like the, the raucous party scene. Um, yeah, those are the four locations in a high school set musical. Yeah, I'd want to subvert that in some manner. Yeah, but I love what you're saying about, yeah, for suburban teenagers, your car is where your life yeah, it is. It's 100%. And, like, you, you live out of your car, particularly if you are at all, like, doing extracurricular activities like Cat is. Yeah. Which actually then reminds me of the question, like, thinking about where teenagers live. I do think it's important to keep it set in the 90s and not yes. have cell phones. Because I think Bianca in particular, particular would be completely transformed by having an Instagram. And also the whole you can't date thing. You yeah. could just date in secret and like text each other all day and night and then like hang out at school and you'd be dating right absolutely yeah i think that has to be solved i think it also has to be solved in the 90s just because of the brand of feminism that cat is like it is so true a particular 90s era female like feminism it just yes i mean i do think it's like it comes from a feminism that was less intersectional like less you know just Certainly, like, white, middle-class, suburban feminism. Feminism, yeah. That, like, like, I grew up with. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not – that just is what it is. And, like, to Mm -hmm. give – I think to instill her with a different feminism, she would be acting out in a different way. She would just become a different character. Yeah, the story would just not be 10 Things I Hate About You anymore also. It would just not – it just couldn't be that. Yeah, just having been marinated in a different understanding of, like, what is rebellion, what is conformism, Mm -hmm. what – do I, as an individual, need to act out against? Yeah. Um, she'd just be a different person. She'd probably yeah. be more sex positive, for one thing. Uh, yeah. It's well, that conversation would happen... That conversation would happen really differently. Yeah. The conversation well, I mean, she has I with Bianca. I just think her whole relationship to, like, having lost her virginity at all would be different. Like, there is this... Again, it's like there's this undercurrent of shame about it. Like, the embarrassing thing is that she had sex in a way 
Yeah. I mean, it's partly that she had sex and didn't really want to. Right. But, like, her reaction to that is, like, I'm not having sex again. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Which is, like, okay, so either we need to, like, unpick that weird shame or that trauma. And I don't think it's the latter. Right. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's weird. It is, like, weird shame that she's, like, putting on to Bianca now. And it's, like. Yeah. You know, and like, when Bianca's reaction too is like so, like oh, you had sex, and like I don't think even in the nineties were people reacting that way to someone having sex in high school. <laughs> but they had to on film. It's like in what's that movie with the the Scarlet Letter one? Uh, Easy A. Easy A. Where somehow the premise is like, oh my gosh, she's a pariah for having had sex, and like they labor so hard to make us believe that that's a remotely plausible situation. Yeah, I think there's still, there is, I mean, there is that very nice. It's weird. It is weird. There is, but it, but there is that very, um, in the same line of like PMS jokes and like, and, you know, calling women bitches, like, is the, the idea of a slut and like the idea of slut shaming yes. and being like, your reputation now is that you are a slut. Like, yes. I mean, and it is forever. Like, yeah. there's absolutely your places where like, if you've had sex at the wrong time or the wrong place, the wrong yeah. way, like. Yeah, yeah like you're a interesting, slut. Yeah, that that's not the thing Kat is ever. Right. No, absolutely not. But I guess because no one knows that she had sex with him. Right. But it is something I feel like that is like an active sort of thing in this world of like you mm-hmm. could be branded that thing. I mean, I don't know. I don't think it is. Or rather, I think realistically mm-hmm. it is. In the movie, I don't think that's ever really the threat. Right. No, that's true. I think, sorry, I think I was going back to Easy A. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that was, no, I true, like conflated. And true in the world. I conflated the worlds in my brain. <laughs> no, it's all good. I brought in another, like, mid-2000s movie set in a high school that's an adaptation of classic literature. So I was really muddying the waters. Yeah, it's fair. I love her parents in that movie. That's my favorite thing about that movie. Stanley Moving on. Um, mm-hmm. It actually is remarkable that sex is only a threat in this right it's only the idea that like joey will trick bianca into sex and that's bad yeah but there's no sort of consequence to that i mean in, in a way it's cool in that like it's not a social consequence it's a personal consequence what cats right. are afraid of is that bianca will personally be hurt it doesn't matter right. what other people think absolutely yeah that is interesting and i think you know there's something patrick not having sex with her when she's drunk is sort of the turning point they yeah. that he's like a consent, like an enthusiastic consent guy. You go, like, Patrick. You go. Yeah, in this, you know, very sweet and authentic way. It's like, oh, that's a lovely trait for a romantic hero. Yeah, it really Sad is. Sad that the bar is so low. The bar but, is you very... Know, he clears it. It's extremely low. But yeah, no, I that was a good, that was a good thing. I think also what allows, kind of allows for like a new, more nuanced conversation about sex and about like... Kat and Bianca's relationship to sex is upping that sister relationship and like laying a groundwork mm-hmm. for a more complex conversation to take place. So I do have one. Here's a question. Yeah. Is the sonnet a song? You know, I think that there, I think there is a world in which it would be very satisfying if all of the songs took place kind of outside the action. And then this song like bridged that gap and like made the vulnerable privacy like something more public that could be I really think, effective. Yeah, but I think if you're going to do that it has to be a song in the world. Yeah. Like no, it has yeah. to be Cat in a band with her guitar singing a song at, you know, the 
talent show or something. Like it can't just be suddenly we're in a musical and she's singing. In class. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I mean is like, yeah, somehow... I was just clarifying. <laughs> yes, that I think that's the structural. She's not just all of a sudden like place. singing to everyone and it and everyone yeah. starts step touching together. Yeah, I mean in the in the like super straightforward musical version, it's absolutely a song. <laughs> Definitely. I yeah. I wonder if it's not like yeah. something. Um, at a coffee shop open mic or or like at this music store they go to like in the montage when she goes to that music store and like plays the guitar yeah something to that effect where i think that it w- it could be really effective if it's a song but i also like wouldn't i wouldn't be upset if it wasn't a song either there's something really interesting about the idea that like music is used if the rule about songs is like music is used for the thoughts that you can't say out loud yeah and so the difference is this is now something she can say Yes. And she doesn't need to sing it to say it. Yeah. Would you use the same sonnet, do you think? I mean, I guess you have to. Yeah. It's so bad. It's not great. It's really not great. Now watching it. I mean, it, like, it wouldn't, she's not a poet. Like, it's okay. It's realistically yeah. not great. No, and it's, like, very cathartic. And, like, I, you know, apparently they shot that scene in one take and it was just, like, the tears were unbidden and it was, like, oh. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, oh, I wonder, yeah. I wonder if it's a different poem so that there is, like, more surprise cleaner yeah break. something cleaner yeah. like a cleaner break from the from the original um yeah. i yeah i like that as well i think yeah i mean i like the idea of letting yeah. it be sort of a riff on 10 things i hate about you yes with the iconic characters the relationships the sort of premise but everything else is a little more up for grabs i think it's a story that like its bones are so strong and also the things that people remember about it are like the characters yes I mean, like you said, there's like these iconic scenes and moments, but they're one-liners. Like there's so much about yeah. the story that like watching it, I was like, like the thing about like, oh my God, the whole first half is about Cameron. Right. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of room kind of within, while maintaining the skeleton that is its strongest part and the part yeah. that people love mm-hmm. to sort of put new flesh on the bones. Yeah. Apparently that's the horrible metaphor yeah, I stuck myself I'm, with. I'm so glad that you stuck yourself with that metaphor. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm not. It was. Yeah. I, I, I saw it through though i committed yeah that was that was i'm really proud of you i'm really Thank i've you. been with you on this journey and we came out the other side and now we have a meaty skeleton <laughs> so meaty um i think then though there is so then there is the one there's that one iconic scene that like exploding the structure and making it more a riff is the the you're just too good to be true scene where he sings but we've established that like in the world of the like yeah that's an in-world song and and that's Mm. a case where i think having it it is a real song assuming we could get the rights to it then it would make sense for that to be sung and then for him to get a sort of different kind of quote-unquote real love song yeah private alone time one later yeah i think or earlier or whatever I mean, Later. I'm, I don't know if you get the rights to that song since it's in, you know, Jersey Boys. <laughs> like, I don't. Oh, yeah. Well, they got it for the movie. Yeah, but that was pre, like, Jersey Boys being on Broadway. Though, then again, not being able to get the rights would then be a great excuse to pick a different song or, you know, but it's true. That is, and then I'm not saying, like, get rid of every No, no, no. I agree. Like, I, no, no, no. I totally agree. But I have, like, I think that what I was bringing up is, like, I have a conflict where I'm like, I want to see that song because it's just, like, such a wonderful, beautiful moment. Um, But I'm also, like, doing the thing that I kind of don't want to do, which is tear something from the movie and, like, put it on stage. But at um, the same time, like, that's, the, I think, the balance you need to strike is, like, right. when are you just doing something, like, 
the Allison Janney's romance novel teacher bit where if you try to put that on stage where it's like Kat sees her screen you'd have to do something weird like Kat reading it out loud like it would be so hard to translate and you'd yeah. clearly just be translating it to get this famous right. joke on stage yeah Whereas you also don't want to go the other direction and say, we're going to strip out everything everybody likes <laughs> and you're not going to get any of those Fair. moments that you wanted because Fair. we don't want it to be, you know, it's like we're adapting it for a reason. And I think that's what I mean about sort of maintaining the kind of skeleton is like there's a core of with the meat. Yeah, but it's like there's a core of sort of scenes and moments and characters yeah. and ideas and plot mm-hmm. general movements that can kind of be, that have to be kept for it to still be not only just to still be 10 things I hate about you, but to still be the thing that people love and want to come see. Right, absolutely. And then it's like, there's other things that it's like, okay, but do we really need that exact joke? Or can we come up with a different joke? Do we need to start with Cameron? Or can we start with Bianca? Yeah. I, in, in my ideal world, where this is so not feasible for, like, a Broadway musical or anything that's running for more than, like, three weeks, but <laughs> I would totally want to just, like, rip off the whole wonderful marching band sequence from Love Labor's Lost that, frankly, I found delightful. When they did Love Labor's Lost, I think it was Alex Timbers uh, directed yeah. that version. Um, So it was back in, we saw it together, so, like, 2000. 14 11 11 no no <laughs> no we graduated though 2013 oh, sorry 2013 yes yeah there was this version like musical version of love labor's lost in shakespeare in the park and there was a moment where an entire marching band literally a marching band came out from and like played within the audience and it was just like beautiful and magical and i loved it to be fair like all actors could play instruments nowadays you could just have the chorus be the marching band that that seems That's like true. not totally implausible that's true that's like that one was like it was some local high school marching band but it wouldn't have to be that it could just be the ensemble yeah that's that's true that's true all right don't sound gloomy you can have your wish you can have a marching band i know but there's something about like the just like impossible scale of like having like 50 people just like flood the flood the theater with is a marching band that was just like so shocking because because you don't see yeah. that nowadays and you don't even see big orchestras nowadays it's all small but also like is that what that moment's about like isn't the shocking thing in that moment that he is singing a song right and he's like i and the and the beautiful part of that moment is like how freaking charismatic and watchable he is yeah yeah, we don't even linger on the sort of marching band no. for more than a second. We sh- we see him and we see the like reactions of the girls on the soccer team. Yeah, yeah. I think I was just trying to re- recreate that wonderful moment in Love Is Ever's Lost that I wish would just happen all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to crush your dreams here. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. I think it's it's just about who could we possibly get who's as cute as you know 1999 Heath Ledger. I mean, it's true, man. And that's another question, just to, like, I think we should wrap up in a second, but given that it was a movie that launched so many people who are now fairly famous, mm-hmm. you know, avoiding casting that looks like, oh, wow, she looks like Julia Stiles. Right. You know. Absolutely. I I think that, like, I think that one of the benefits of, I think this is, I have a lot of feelings about Broadway marketing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have extensive feelings about Broadway marketing, uh, and I have written about it in my thesis that no one will ever read essentially i i think that we'll to that in the liner notes too. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> so essentially, sorry for interrupting 
No, you're good. So essentially, uh, I think oftentimes you're selling a show based on like a title that people familiar are familiar with, or you're selling it based on a star. And so I think one of the benefits of having the title of 10 Things Say About You is I don't think you have to have stars. I mean, a benefit would be, of course, if you like, if you're hiring a cool like rock musician to write the music, then it's like, great, we have like Sarah Bareilles and Waitress. It was like Sarah Bareilles, yeah. Waitress, and then you, ha- you could have Broadway stars in it and like some people who like aren't really well known. And like, that's kind of a wonderful benefit of this title. I totally agree. I mean, you got that with SpongeBob. Yeah, I don't think really anybody in that cast. I mean, some of them have been sort of around Broadway for a yes, long time, but like, absolutely. What's his name? Ethan Slater. Yeah, was our age. Don't think about that for too long. Um, oh, one of my friends from college was in it too. Whatever. But I mean, that's a, speaking of like sort of casting people in their early twenties. Like you know, you could because I think you're exactly right. It's ten things I hate about you. That's going to market itself. Yeah. You can cast young actors who actually kind of look like they're in high school and you know it doesn't have to be oh shoot we need to get you know ben platt because he'll sell tickets yeah it can be someone who will actually be good for one of these roles yes he's not great but no no no, absolutely these roles all right well Haley, i have have one final question lay it on me all right so in the vein of iconic scenes do we just take the whole paintball scene and make it into a massive paintball fight with the entire audience yeah i think everyone has a paintball gun taped to the bottom of their <laughs> seat and then you get it out half the what audience is red wrong? half the audience is blue nothing could go wrong nothing could go wrong and then also whoever is playing the heath ledger character can have those like really tight shiny pants on yes yeah absolutely that would be and then just imagine the sort of the paint with like canvas for all those paintballs yeah I think that sounds great. I mean, I, it can't be against any sort of fire regulations or anything. I think actors' equity would be beyond fine with that. Yeah. Oh, oh assuredly. No, then nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for 10 Things I Hate About You, the musical. I'm Jen. And I'm Haley. Uh, join us next time as we dig into The Hobbit, the musical. <laughs> See you then. Hey everybody, Jen here. Just a friendly reminder, if you're enjoying our podcast, to please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast, uh, share with your friends. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at themusical.podcast. You can also email us at themusical.podcast at gmail.com. And thanks as always to Jen Lin for the music in this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. See you next time.